0: Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24, 14 to 24. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain, You shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it... You were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, now God confronts the serpent and in the confrontation of the serpent he does not inquire. There's no question, nothing like that. He he just says, because you have done this, God knows and there's no need to interrogate and to bring about repentance in the serpent. You see, the interrogation before was in order for them to confess and to repent. But there's no need because there is no repentance for the serpent. There's either their sin or they are chosen. As it says in 1 Timothy 5.21, that there are chosen angels. There are chosen angels and there are fallen angels. And Satan is the chief of the fallen angels. So, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly... Shall you go and dust? Shall you eat all the days of your life? The serpent is cursed more than the cattle and more than the beasts of the field, the domestic and wild animals, more than them. In what sense is the serpent more cursed than they? Well, when they are cursed, they die. They die physically, but they don't have souls. And there's inward part, or souls they don't have, they would never go to hell, never be punished like that. Cattle are not punished that way. Beasts are not punished that way. When they die, they cease to exist. They have animation, they have blood, but then that's it. They don't have a soul or a spirit. But in the case of the serpent, all the days of his life, forever and ever, he's going to be cursed above and beyond the animals. That's the way in which he is cursed. It could not mean merely that he's cursed because he's going to be on the ground as a serpent. Merely that he's going to be eating uh, dust as his food. That it's going to go into his mouth or anything like that. It's using a figure, I believe, to describe the eternal punishment of the serpent. The eternal punishment of the serpent. And furthermore... This would be another indication, Uh, regardless of this issue of whether the serpent used to have legs and now it does not (laughs) have legs, things of that nature, I think that that it is an unnecessary discussion and an unnecessary question because the Bible does not address it. But if we take the the view that the serpent term is used of the devil, a spirit being, then all of that other... uh, all those questions go away in that the serpent is called the serpent because it is a a, a slimy, sneaky, uh, slippery object or animal that finds its way here or there, sneakily finds its way, deceptively finds its way to capture its prey. And that's why the devil is called by that name. He's called by that name because that's the way he behaves. He behaves that way really, Actually speaking, he behaves that way, just like a snake or serpent does. And just as a snake, being on the ground is a loathsome creature. And we consider those creatures more loathsome that are right there near the ground, right? Don't mice and and rats, don't they also go on the ground like that? They're more, usually we consider those kinds of creatures more loathsome. So that is... uh, a sign or a metaphor, an example of the way in which the serpent is cursed. It is a loathsome creature, the serpent is, the snake is, that is, Satan is. Furthermore, verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This verse, verse 15, is known as the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel, or the first announcement, first pronouncement of the gospel, the first indication that God would send a Redeemer in order to reverse the curse. Let's see how this verse explains it. From this verse, we would also say that this is the first announcement of the covenant of grace, because in chapter 2, God put a test before them, a covenant, a covenant of works, that if they obeyed God's command in Genesis two fifteen to 17 if they obeyed God's command, then there would be nothing further to do. There would be no need for redemption. So it would have been dependent on their works. But now that they have sinned, salvation cannot be dependent on their works. If it was dependent on their works before their fall and they failed, how could it be dependent <laughs> on their works, man's works, after the fall... When they are, they are now sinful. They could not be expected to obey after the fall. So right. salvation could not be based on works. Therefore, salvation has to be based on grace. That's why Genesis 3.15 is, is also known as the first announcement of the covenant of grace. That salvation would be by grace. In fact, Romans 11.6 puts it in these polar opposites. It says... If it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Why did he say, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace? Because in Paul's mind, just as in God's mind from Genesis 2 and 3, it's either by the works of man or it is by the grace of God. And if it is by the grace of God, then God has to endow faith and repentance, a changed heart, to the individual for him to believe. If he does not do it, the individual will not believe, because he is dependent on his works, he is smug in his own human wisdom, he thinks he's just fine before God, he doesn't even want to pursue God in truth, the true God, in the right way. He wants to worship idols and practice immorality. That's what natural man is. So it takes the grace of God to change him. And therefore, if it takes the grace of God to change, on what basis does God give grace? Based on Christ and based on election and predestination. Based on the work of Christ, Christ's righteousness, that is applied to us. And based on predestination, God chooses who will receive this work of Christ for their benefit for their salvation. Well, that's what Genesis 3, 15 first announces. Another fact we need to consider from Romans eleven six 6 is, it is no longer on the basis of works. Right. Why did he say it is no longer on the basis of works? When was it ever on the basis of works? Only here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And then, in the law of Moses, Moses said and taught, basically, do this and you will live. Leviticus 18.5. Do this and you will live. He put a challenge before them. Not with one commandment, but with 613 commandments. Do this and you will live. Hypothetically, Moses presented to the people this position, do this and you will live. Of course, they would not do it. They could not do even one. Right. That's why it also says in the Old Testament, in uh, Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the words of this law. Quoted also in Galatians three, ten to 12. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book of the law. The curse is on the person who is not able to do it all. So it's no longer on the basis of works in the sense that God set the test in the covenant of works in the garden, and God also presented the impossibility of it in the law of Moses. It's not that way. It is only by grace. By grace, through faith, in Christ, because of Christ's resurrection, by the power of the Spirit to change us, and by the eternal decree of God to save us by predestination. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. There will be enmity or conflict between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's seed and and the woman's seed. Between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. Between the serpent's descendants and the woman's descendants. There will be conflict between the two of them. Strife between the two of them. They will be waging war against one another. We know in the case of 315, your seed, the serpent himself does not procreate in a physical sense, because the serpent is a spirit being, right? He's an invisible spirit. The devil is. So he does not procreate. And we know also from Matthew chapter 22, Jesus explained to the Sadducees that angels do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. So they don't procreate. Good angels and fallen angels, they don't procreate because they are not physical. So... Who are these seed? Your seed. They must be spiritual descendants of the devil, just as Jesus meant it in John eight forty four. Jesus meant it that way in John eight forty four. He said to his opponents, You are of your father, the devil, and you do the desires of your father. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. When he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what he meant. That's what he meant here in Genesis 3.15. As well, another cross-reference would be Ephesians 2.1-3, where he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were also sons of disobedience, and we were also uh, tempted and uh, heirs or descendants of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, meaning the devil. That that's who we were. That spirit of the devil was in us before our conversion. Right. Then her seed. Her seed, she certainly will have descendants, physical descendants, correct? Sure. So all of her physical descendants will be at odds with the devil the devil will be in conflict with them. But she will also have spiritual descendants, will she not? Because it says in Genesis 3, 20, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. From that passage, we gather that they converted, that there was a change in them after this confrontation. They were, by 321, they were redeemed. So naturally, they would also have spiritual descendants. She would have spiritual descendants. But furthermore, in 315, it says, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Among her descendants, there would be one, he. It is singular, he. He shall bruise or crush you on the head and you shall bruise or crush him on the heel. The serpent will crush the descendant of the woman on the heel, but the descendant of the woman will crush the serpent on the head. It's worse to be crushed on the head than on the heel, right? So, the descendant of the woman must be Christ, who crushes the devil. That's why it says in 1 John 3, 8, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is why it says in Romans sixteen twenty, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. On the day of judgment, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6, 2, On the day of judgment, Christ and we who belong to him are going to pronounce judgment on the world and defeat the devil, crush him under our feet on the day of judgment. We saints will do so. This is what he meant here. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He did so on the cross by his resurrection and he will come in his second coming and on the day of judgment, he will do so at that time as well. Now, when did Satan crush or bruise Christ on the heel? The only incident, the only time that could have been would be the cross. The cross, where when there was a temporary setback, a temporary um, despondent group of disciples, but it was not forever. It was not permanent, because three days later he would rise from the dead. Let me submit to you that from Genesis 3.15, we have to have all of these doctrines understood to make any sense of this verse. All of the doctrines I have just announced, but also some more. How about the deity of Christ? How about the deity of Christ? Does that not uh, not have to be assumed, the deity of Christ, the divine nature, to destroy destroy the serpent? Because if Adam and Eve could not destroy the serpent by their sinlessness before they sinned, How could Adam and Eve defeat the serpent after they sinned? And if Adam and Eve initially, after they sinned, could not defeat the serpent, how could any of Adam and Eve's descendants, you and me, who have more sin, (laughs) who have less knowledge and wisdom than Adam and Eve did in the garden, how could we defeat the serpent? We can't do that. So, it has to be God who defeats the serpent. And God is making reference to himself by means of third person, which should not actually be a surprise to us. Right. Didn't Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? Oh, yeah. He would refer to himself as the Son of Man. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, he said. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said those words himself, but he referred to himself in the third person. That's what's happening here too. God refers to himself. In the third person. We can have many more examples of this. For example Moses. In the law of Moses. refers to himself in the third person. Though he wrote the law. Second Corinthians 12. The apostle Paul says. That I know a man in Christ. Whether in the body or outside of the body. I do not know. This man was taken up. And caught up to the third heaven. He's referring to himself. Right? So. Jesus refers to himself and he says, he shall bruise you on the head. That's the divine nature. The human nature. The human nature. Because he will be crushed on the heel. That's why it says in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of the time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born of a woman. Born of a woman. Why... That phrase, born of a woman, because of this, Genesis 3.15, God promised that her descendant would crush the serpent. Furthermore, if he has to be born and have a human nature, does he not have to have a perfect human nature, like Adam and Eve had before they sinned? So the sinlessness, perfection of Christ, his utter and complete true righteousness is also necessary for this verse to be true. Moreover, what about the virgin birth of Christ? Does he not have to have a pure, completely pure and sinless nature, not just from actual sins, but also from inherited sin, from original sin? Does he not have to be completely free from all that sin and guilt and condemnation? Therefore, he has to be born of a virgin, which means the Holy Spirit needs to produce a miracle in Mary for him to be conceived and born. Then, if the serpent crushes Jesus on the heel, and that signifies his death, then how can his death be of any value unless he rises from the dead? To conquer death, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Because I live, you shall live also. All of these statements are necessary and they come together, but they come together in this verse as well. We have to assume, we have to know that this gospel proclamation, the first gospel proclamation included this. Spoken, of course, here in figurative, metaphorical, illustrative ways, yet what is the concrete reality? We have to ask that question. What is the theological truth mentioned and implied by these words? We have to ask that question. Everybody does it, everybody, even skeptical and liberal scholars, when they come to this passage, they have to ask, what does this mean? We know he's speaking in metaphor, but what does this mean? And what do they say? They often just conclude, well, it's just, they never knew anything about Christ, they never, this is not a prediction of Christ and the gospel, it's just that God was going to work out some way to overcome the, the evils that are in the world. That's it. It's so vague like that. They just leave it like that. But that's not, it's not that vague. It is more specific. And we know that it is based on the rest of Scripture. Then, If it was this vague, that means that God put Adam and Eve in misery. Right? With no no solution. He put them in misery with no solution. Why would Adam and Eve to his first two humans give them such vagaries and misery? It couldn't be. be. Mm -hmm. He had to have some way to explain to them for them to have certain and concrete knowledge that they would be forgiven of sin. They had to. How else could they have been able to communicate that to their offspring? And then communicate it to their offspring, which we will see towards the end of this chapter in chapter 4, when God slew these animals, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, God initiated the death of an animal... For them to be clothed with garments of skin. That's a sacrifice. God offered up a sacrifice. He initiated the way of their redemption signified by the garments of skin and the death of the animals. But it would not have been the death of a bloody animal to save their souls from sin. It would only be useful as it was a spiritual lesson, a type an illustration, a parable, whatever term you want to use to describe how it would be fulfilled in a true and ultimate, eternal way by the coming of Christ and by His death and resurrection. This is why it says so clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins and But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10.4 and 10.12. It is impossible for the blood of animals. How could the death of an animal pay for my sin? I am above animals. Why would God accept that? I have the image of God. The animal does not possess the image of God. I am a superior creature to the animal, based on Genesis 1 and 2 the animals cannot take the place of my sin. So he would have, in order to give them comfort and reconciliation and peace, God would have taught Adam and Eve the truth about Christ and the way of redemption in him. Then, Genesis three sixteen. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Well, now a specific curse upon the woman and her relationship to the man, and then he'll talk about the curse on the man. To her, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. The the production of children, from Genesis one twenty eight was a blessing, but now this blessing is mixed with a curse. God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, but now it is mixed with the curse, the curse of great pain, great pain in childbirth. And though she has this great pain, it says, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This desire... This desire may be taken in two ways. If it is a negative desire, it would be just like Genesis 4, verse 7. Genesis 4, verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. This negative desire would be for the woman to usurp her husband. That's what Eve did before she sinned. And now he may be signifying here that she will do so after she sinned. Both before the fall and after the fall to usurp her husband. To master her husband when the husband should master her or rule over her. Be the master of his house. That's what it says in, at the end of verse 16. And he shall rule over you. You will desire to master him but he shall rule over you. He is supposed to rule over you in the positive sense, not in the negative sense, though some take it that way. Um, now, in 3.16, 3.16, we may also think or interpret her desire for her husband to be in a positive sense, as it is in the Song of Solomon 7.10, This term desire is also there. Song of Solomon 7.10, it says that, um, the, the, the woman says, my desire is for him or his desire is for me. His desire is for me. So this desire may be a good desire, a desire for one another in matrimony and then his rulership over her in matrimony. This term to rule is taken positively in other places in the Old Testament. It does not have to be a negative term, such as Judges 8, 22 to 23. Judges 8, 22 to 23. When the people wanted uh, Gideon to rule over them, he says, I will not rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. It's the same. And then in Psalm 22, 28, where it says that Christ, Messiah, will rule. He will rule. Verse 17. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. To Adam, what did he do wrong? He listened to the voice of his wife. He listened to the voice of his wife. In this case, his wife's voice was a sinful voice. And because he listened to the sinful voice of his wife, there's a curse on him. That is the context of this. It is wrong to listen to the sinful voice of the wife. That's what he did. That's what God is teaching him. It is not saying you should never listen to your wife, the voice of your wife, because it could be that the voice of the wife is saying something that is righteous something that is true. Notice in Genesis 21:12 we have a positive example of it. Right. But God said to Abraham, "Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named." Listen to whatever she says. So he did. Abraham did. God told Abraham, listen to the advice that Sarah gave to you. Listen. But in this one, we know in Genesis 3.17 it was wrong or sinful uh, advice that she gave to him. Even though God said, I commanded you. God commanded one thing, the wife commanded another thing. The issue and how to test it, how to test the information we receive, whether it's from our wife or whoever it is, how to test it Test it by the Bible. Because that's what was contradicted. You have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. We have to test it by the Bible. That's why Isaiah 8, 19 and 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if anyone does not speak in accordance with this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have to speak in accordance with the law and the testimony, the word of God. If they don't speak accordingly... There's no light, don't listen to them, okay? That's the same as here. Then the curse in 17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you, In toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Adam was told in in Genesis 2.15 to cultivate and keep the garden. He was supposed to work already before the fall, but now his work is toilsome work. He's going to have to sweat, as it says in verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat. He's not going to always enjoy it. It's going to be loathsome to him, tiresome and toilsome to him. That's the part of the curse. The work is not the curse. But he added the blessing of work with an element of a curse to it. He has mixed it now because now we are in a fallen world. In toil, toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. And what is a part of this toil? Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, thorns and thistles. These weeds will grow. Weeds will grow when they were not to grow before. Now they will grow, and they will be a nuisance to Adam. And that's the same with all kinds of other labor. All of our labor, whether it's farming or anything else, there's always elements of bitterness in it always elements of toil always elements of things that we dislike and disdain and even hate as a part of our work yet that's part of the curse because of sin there's a blessing in work mixed with the curse we also see the blessing here in verse 18 and you shall eat the plants of the field I'll still allow you and give you the plants to eat you can still eat I want you to eat That's the blessing that retains even while the curse is pronounced. Then verse 19, he reiterates it by saying, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. This curse in verse 19 is not only spiritual, we have been speaking in spiritual terms thus far but it's also physical. This is evident from the physical hardship of the woman in childbearing, the physical hardship of the man in work, and now it says that he will return to the ground. Returning to the ground was a curse upon the sin of Adam. He would not have returned to the ground, there would be no death if he had not sinned. Because he sinned, He will die physically also. These two points are clear. That is, the fall produced spiritual death and physical death. Spiritual and physical. Not spiritual only and not physical only, but spiritual and physical. If we take away one of those two, we undermine the Bible. We undermine the gospel. We undermine redemption. It was both a spiritual fall and a physical fall. We know it was a spiritual fall because of these things he's been saying, such as verse 15, and what I just said about Genesis 3.21, about redemption and the garments of skin. We know the rest of the Bible is concerned about our spiritual salvation. We know it's spiritual. And also when it says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They died spiritually immediately the moment they sinned. They had this alienation which they recognized because of their shame. They covered themselves. So that was immediate. But in God's mercy and in God's purposes, his overall plan of redemption, he allows for the physical longevity to happen so that there can be reproduction, there can be procreation, there can be physical descendants for his long-term plan. But eventually there would be death, physical death. And that's what he says to Adam in 3.19. Because of your sin... You'll return to the ground from which you were taken. That will happen. This also shows that this death was not embedded in Adam when he was first created. The death that Adam experienced, spiritual and physical, were not innate to his initial creation. They were not there from the beginning, they were foreign to it from the beginning. This also shows that there can be no death, no curse. There can be nothing like this before the first sin of Adam and Eve. It could not have existed. Not with humans, not with animals, and not with plants. No curse on the ground. There was no hint of a curse on the ground of thorns and thistles before this incident, right? No hint of it. Because there was none. Because it was all pristine and pure and clean, unpolluted. Very good but now, yeah, he called it very good, Genesis 1, 31. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Adam gave Eve's name to her. And... Not only did he give her a common noun name, a common noun name in Genesis 2.23, she shall be called woman. Now he gives her a proper noun name, that is Eve. Eve. He gave her that name, Eve. What's the significance of this? The significance is the one who names is acknowledging and exerting his authority over the other. Just as parents do to their children, we name them. Just as masters do to their dogs, we name them, right? And whatever other things. We name something or someone because we have the authority to do it. We have the prerogative to do it, so we do it. This shows his headship. Adam had headship over the woman. uh, Ephesians 5, for example. Ephesians 5, 22-33... He had headship over the woman before the fall and after the fall, before the fall in calling her woman, and after the fall in calling her Eve. Furthermore, Eve means life or living, life or living. Why would he give her that when death was just brought into the world by both of them? Why would he do that? Unless he were thinking long term, thinking about their redemption, thinking about the redemption of their descendants, and thinking about redemption generally. That they would have physical descendants, and among those physical descendants, there would be life, and specifically life in the one man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That's why he would say, Eve, give her that name. He was saying it in anticipation. And she's the mother of all living. All who have life in God are descendants of Eve. Further, verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Clearly, verse 21 is God's initiation. He made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. It assumes that He initiated. God did so. Now, if He made garments of skin... He did not make garments of skin because there was a live animal and he kept alive. He had to slay the animal. The animal had to be put to death for God to take the skin of the animal and prepare it and clothe Adam and Eve. He had to take the animals that he put to death in order to clothe them. Was God merely interested in them having a more durable garment? (laughs) A more comfortable garment? No. 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 This is, only, this is only an illustration, a type, a metaphor of redemption. Redemption in Christ. That's the reason why he did this. He did it for that reason, to show that they needed to be saved from their sins in Christ, by Christ dying for their sins. We already said that the Bible... Teaches from Hebrews 10.4 and 10.12 that there is no way that the death of an animal, the blood of bulls and goats, can take away sins. Well, we also have statements to that effect in the Old Testament. Psalm 40, Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, which is also quoted in Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. Psalm 40, 6 to 8, quoted in Hebrews 10. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Who is this speaking to the Lord? According to Hebrews 10, it is Christ speaking to the Father. When he comes into the world, it says, this is what he quotes. This is what he says. That is, the Son says this to the Father, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Why would He say you have not desired and required these sacrifices? When He did in the Law of Moses, right? Psalm 40, written by David, is about 500 years after the Law of Moses, the time of Moses, 1500 B.C. to 1000 B.C. God required them. And even in the book of Genesis, they are offering sacrifices, yeah. right? So if they're doing that, then what is this desired and required? You have not. He means for ultimate redemption. Yes, to signify redemption, I required it, but not for actual redemption. I did not require it. I require the body, a body. The Hebrew text does not say, but a body you have prepared for me, but the Greek Old Testament does, a translation of Psalm 40, and the Greek and English, of course, of Hebrews 10, says, but a body you have prepared for me. (coughs) Jesus knew, and David knew when he wrote, that Jesus would come into the world with a physical body to do whatever was in the law of God, because the law of God was the only thing on Jesus' mind. Because he had it on his heart. The only thing that he wanted to do was to obey everything that was written in the Old Testament to fulfill redemption according to the purposes of God. That's all. Then, did the people themselves know Psalm 49? Psalm 49 it says, A psalm of the sons of Korah. A psalm of the sons of Korah. These were among the singers in the temple. Psalm 49, 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Here they assert, the sons of Korah, as they sing, assert, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly. If it's costly, we already said an animal can't do it. He also says a human can't do it. A mere human can't do it. Your comrade cannot do it. We need the commander of heaven to come down and to die on the cross. Only he can do it because none of our fellow men Can do so. No man can by any means redeem his brother because it's a costly redemption. It's a costly ransom for the soul. And it can only be done by a perfect man who is God in human flesh. That's the only way. Because if the man is God in human flesh, then the redemption that he proffers is a redemption that is eternal because God is eternal. Then Genesis three twenty-two to twenty-four. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he stretch forth stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God's saying here, The man has become like us. He has become like us, not in a full sense, that's absurd, but in this partial sense. He has become, because now he has this awareness of his nakedness. He has an understanding of the difference between shame and innocence. He knows these things now, and he knows he has transgressed. He has this sense. He knows this difference between good and evil, this difference that he had not known in his innocence. He knew it would have been evil to disobey. That's why they deliberated with the serpent. But he did not know evil in this sense with the guilt from their sin. So, God says, Lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of life was there to signify life in Christ. But God had already also, he had ordained that if they had partaken of the tree of life, then they would live forever without redemption, right? Without redemption in Christ. That ability of the tree still was there and God prevented them while being sinners from partaking of the tree of life and living forever apart from the death of Christ. He did not want that to happen apart from them putting their faith in Christ and having the blood of Christ applied to them. He did not want them to do it in some other way by going to the tree of life. Therefore, he sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. He sent him out, and verse 24 says, he drove the man out. He sent him out, and he drove him out. He drove him out is said in a negative sense. It is not in a positive sense that he drove him out. Remember, In Genesis 21, when Sarah and God told Abraham to drive out and send out Ishmael and his mother from the household, it says in Genesis 21.10, Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. So this was... Because of punishment, because of sin, sin in Ishmael and Hagar, but also the sin of Adam and Eve, they deserve to be driven out, pushed out of the Garden of Eden. Not only that, east of the Garden of Eden, he put the cherubim there. The cherubim, this is the first time this term is used in the Old Testament. The term cherubim, without dispute, is a term for angels. It's a term for angels. It does not say how many, but at least two. And I say at least two because the Hebrew ending, I am, is is a plural ending. It's a plural ending, so there must have been at least two angels stationed there with the flaming sword, this ominous sword, a flaming sword, turning every direction to guard the way to the tree of life, to prevent anyone from ever accessing the tree of life God stationed those angels. Which also brings us back to the point. We're dealing with spiritual realities here. Therefore, for those antagonists and skeptics of the Bible who say the serpent is fictitious, the serpent is not real, Satan is not real, there is no personal evil devil, what will they say about Genesis 3.24? 3.24 says that there are good angels cherubim and even skeptics have to acknowledge skeptical scholars of the old testament have to acknowledge that cherubim throughout the old testament is a term for angels even in historical contexts like in 1 kings chapter 6 to 8 when solomon when solomon had these images of angels there in the temple he had the angels there in the temple with wings right there in the Holy of Holies. He had them there. And even Moses did generations before in the tabernacle. He had them there. So they believed in angels. They believed in the unseen world. This is not an invention of Christianity. The Old Testament is dealing with the unseen, invisible, spiritual world and physical world together, hand in hand. It's not a merely and exclusively physical book. The Old Testament is not that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.